When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast can be heard on the Farm and Rural Ag Network along with lots of other great agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs. Be sure to check out farmruralag.com. My guest today is Brianne Brown. Brianne and her husband, Chris, own and operate Bestley Farms. Brianne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Bestley Farms is where? What part of the country are you in? So for almost seven years now, we have been, uh, we've relocated to eastern Ontario. We are smack dab in the middle um, between Kingston and Napanee, just about 15 minutes north of the 401, uh, north of a little town called Yarker. Yarker? Mm-hmm. We, I think you might be the first person I've ever talked to from Yarker. <laughs> we probably are, if you want to get even <laughs> even crazier. We're actually um, right outside of a little intersection called Moscow. So there you go. Oh, Moscow near the town of Yarker. Very yep. cool. <laughs> and Bestley Farms, you guys milk some cows? Yes, we do. We milk 100 uh, registered purebred Holsteins and Jerseys. We're about 70 Holsteins and 30 Jerseys, and we um, own we own about 400 acres. We crop 600 acres in total. Right. And someone who's not in the dairy industry might not know, but there's some unique challenges with having Holsteins and Jerseys in the same barn. Uh, yeah, yeah, there there is, but there's also some interesting and unique opportunities as well. The two breeds co-mingle very, very well. Uh, as far as challenges, jerseys we have found are a little more efficient when it comes to feeding them. We are TMR-based, but we uh, the jerseys, we have to, it's a, it's a fine line between labor efficiency and uh, and cost efficiency in feeding them. And so we typically in the past have, the, the Holsteins are on a TMR program and the jerseys have been more um, component fed, but currently we're actually playing around with that a little bit and the jerseys are receiving a base TMR. We also do top dress. Both breeds get top dressed. They're split up into three production groups, and the two higher producing groups do get a top dress because we are in a tie stall facility. And lots of times, Holstein people and Jersey people argue about which one is better. When you talk to yourself, do you argue about whether Holsteins (laughs) and Jersey are better? I, I, I suppose you could say I do. I they, they have each of them have their redeeming qualities and uh, and then the qualities that you, you maybe grumble under your breath about a little bit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they do. They do complement each other very, very well. Yeah, ne- neither one has been bred for their intelligence. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you, so you've been on this farm for seven years. Did you grow up on a farm? I did. Yes, Besley Farms is originally from Shelburne, which is about an hour and a half northwest of Toronto. I'm technically sixth generation on Besley Farms. I'm the first female to own it. My husband is originally from a dairy farm in Walkerton, Ontario, and we met when we started university at University of Guelph together. So Brown is your married name. What's your maiden name? My maiden name is actually Besley. Um, same as our prefix, only it ends in a Y instead of uh, an A. Well, that's not confusing at all. <laughs> no, yeah, you can blame you can blame my grandfather <laughs> okay. for that one. <laughs> well, they sometimes did some weird things. I suppose they would say that about us too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so you grew up on this farm, sort of north of Toronto. What made you move to eastern Ontario? So, um, a few different factors. 
there was some family upheaval in 2006 and Beverly Farms um, consisted mm-hmm. of my grandfather and three brothers, my dad being one of them. And then by 2006, my grandfather and one uncle had, had left. And then my father decided that he no longer wanted to be part of the business. And so that left my, my husband and I and my uncle. And he is was much more involved in the cash cropping side of things and wasn't so much as in love with the cows as we were. And so we decided then amicably to, to split. That took our land base from 1,300 acres down to owning 180. And so okay. we had, a, yeah, we had, uh, we were milking 100 cows and only owned 180 acres of land. So you can imagine what our feed bill was. <laughs> and, uh, and land prices in that area uh, were significantly higher. And so we looked to Eastern Ontario and uh, we found this farm and, and we were able to purchase it. And it had a high salt facility big enough for 100 cows and, and the rest is history, as they say. And why tie stalls? What made you choose tie stalls over free stalls? Good question. Really good question. I mean, one of the, one of the main reasons is finances. It was all in what we could afford. We were 28 years old and out on our own, owning our, our own dairy operation, which as those that, that know the industry, that's not the norm. Um, and so, so cash flow and finances were tight. Um, and so we, we had to be cognizant of that and what we could afford. And then, but the other side of that is, is we are a show herd. Obviously, the milk in the tank pays a lot of bills, but we, we do enjoy um, marketing our genetics and, and showing our cattle. And we found that that's a little easier to do in a, in a tie stall setup. Right. And so you said you're sixth generation on the farm. How far back can you trace some of your cow families? Some of the cow families? That's a really good question. So the herd that we, so we, we essentially amalgamated both of the, like the herd that was here and, and then the higher end of the herd that was here and the high, and the, the higher end of our herd. My family did not begin registering Holsteins until I believe it was the 1970s. And so okay. our, our cow families actually don't trace that far back. That being said, some <laughs> of the cow families on the farm we purchased here, they can be traced quite a ways back. Right. Well, you know, the 1970s is almost 50 years ago now, right? Yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> My kids remind remi- me of that. Thank yeah, you remind yeah. for reminding me of that. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have both Holsteins and jerseys at home? No, we only had Holsteins. I grew up with, with strictly Holsteins. My husband grew up on a master breeder Guernsey farm. And so okay. in 2003, when we graduated and married, when we amalgamated my husband's herd with our herd, the goal was to disperse the Guernseys in the United States because there was more of a market there. But as everyone can remember, that's the year the border closed due to BSE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we did keep the Guernseys on for a little while, but we were young breeders with a lot of enthusiasm and, and wanted to really be involved and, and wanted to have some opportunities to, to, to do try some new things. And we just didn't find those opportunities available in the Guernsey breed. And so we slowly sold off the Guernsey cows. In 2009 is when Chris and I purchased our first jersey. And yeah, they've they've just flourished. We love the breed. We love the people in the breed. That's probably one of the the biggest oh. reasons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not saying anything about Holstein people. No. No, not at all. We love the people <laughs> in the Holstein breed as well. But I think everybody will tell you that, that the the cattle are very different, and the people in both breeds are are very different as well. And we've had a lot of success with them in the show ring. And uh, there are, there are people in the show world that up until recently 
didn't realize that I even had Holsteins. They only knew me for as having jerseys. And whereas, you know, Holsteins has been in my family for generations, and the jerseys are just new since 2009. And are you still the one actually in the ring showing the cows? Yes, I do. I do most of it. The The way we kind of split up the responsibilities here on the farm is, is I'm known as the cow person and my husband is the crop guy. That's very, very general because my husband does all of the feeding. But when right. it comes to the genetics and the breeding and things like that, that's my, uh, that's my area of responsibility. Right. You're making those decisions and you may or may not ask for his input. Exactly. <laughs> right. You 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 nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so would you say that you are a non-traditional farm family? Um, I guess there are certain aspects that would make us non-traditional, but then I think we're also pretty traditional in other in other ways. I mean, non-traditional aspect being the fact that our farm is my family's farm, whereas, you know, when you think of young people coming to a farm and a young couple starting out, it's typically the the husband's farm that they mm-hmm. do they do go to. So so yeah, in that sense we're non traditional. I mean for us, my family's farm was a was quite a bit larger and there was just more opportunity. So yeah, in that sense we are we are non traditional. But I mean in in the traditional sense of the word, Chris has has come in, I mean Besley Farms has been his farm. You know, we've owned it ourselves since 2008. He's worked on the farm with my dad, and my uncle, since 2003 full time. It was very a really easy transition, and there was he never had that sense that you know he was an outsider. I mean, right from day one, he was part of the family and meshed very, very well with my family. Because that can be a little bit of a challenging situation to navigate through initially. Absolutely. I mean, succession planning is a uh, is quite the catchphrase and in our industry and I mean generate the, the, the difficulties and challenges that the you know generations face whenever they have to start talking about those types of things are difficult. I do a fair amount of speaking on this topic and I was just talking in Northumberland County a few weeks ago on this exact thing and and Chris and I have a very unique perspective because we did start out on our own so young being 28 and signing the checks and having <laughs> not having that that older generation to to look to for guidance it was exciting it was you know thrilling but at the same stretch very very scary and and so then but being so young when we started you know when we're we're already thinking another 10 years down the road 15 years down the road we're going to be more than ready to to either hand off to the next generation <laughs> or 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 to sell if our children decide they don't want to farm but you know on the flip side of that when you have these these family farms where people you know into their into their 30s and 40s and even 50s that do not have complete farm ownership mm-hmm. it's difficult to hand that off or to start talking about handing that off to the next generation when you haven't really had your time so we've got we've got quite a unique perspective. We can see both sides of the negotiations, I guess you could say, you know, and and we 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 can we can relate to to the the internal struggles that both parties have, you know, meaning the the, the older the older generation that, that owns the farm and the new ones coming in. We we get it. We get where they're both coming from because we've experienced them both and so it's it can be a struggle. What does the next generation look like for you? How many kids have you got? 
We have five children. Our oldest, uh, Carter, is 13, and then our only daughter, she will be 12 here next week. And then we have three more boys, 10, 8, and 6. He will be 7 in September. So that's our, yeah, that's our next generation. And they're still too young to know what they're they're going to do, but uh, they do have a love for the farm. So we're not going to push them in any direction. We just want them to do what they love, whatever that looks like. And so with your daughter, what kind of role do you see for her in agriculture? You're involved day to day in the in the dairy. Do you think that she might turn her hand to that as well? I actually do. I do believe that that's probably something there's, I mean, it can all change tomorrow, but of our five children, there are two that kind of stick out to me that I think if, if one of the, if any of them were to, to follow agriculture for the rest of their life, my daughter would be one. And then our, our fourth child, Griffin, is the other. They're the two that really seem to have a love for it. And and I mean, again, I'm not going to push her her into that, but it's an exciting time for women in agriculture, and we've got some strong women leaders in ag right now. And I would be thrilled and honored if she followed in my footsteps. I had uh, I had a brother and a sister. I was the oldest growing up, and then I had another. I had two other cousins, boy and a girl, on the farm, and I was the only one that wanted to get back into the the actual farming. My sister is is in business in ag and I was the only one that, that wanted to get into it so it worked out well for me but I um yeah I'd be thrilled if she wanted to I'm not going to push her that way but that option is there to, for her do you worry that she'll have a tougher time in agriculture than than one of her brothers would um I think that that issue is still there um, in the country we live in. We're very fortunate compared to other countries in the world. But I think um, as time goes on, that that's becoming less of an issue. And, you know, she's a strong girl. And, and uh, I look forward to the time whenever gender doesn't even come up when we're judged upon our, our credentials and our expertise and knowledge and, and things like that versus whether we're male or female. You know, I still come across it myself in the business, and I, I think I would be doing a disservice to say that it, it's not an issue because I do believe it still is an issue, but I don't think, I think we've made great strides, that's for sure. And you've spoken about that a little bit, limitations that women can encounter. Yeah, I'm going to be actually next week at the Arel Food Summit in uh, at the University of Guelph. It's a global event. The way that that all came about, I participated in um, in an interview for a study. It's a four-year study being done by an associate professor at the University of mm-hmm. Guelph. They're looking at, you know, the um, barriers and opportunities for young farmers around the world, specifically Canada, China, Indonesia, and India are kind of the four countries that they're, mm-hmm. they've been focusing on. And so... From that interview, I was then asked if I would like to be on the panel for young women in farming. So what were the kind of things, Brianne, what were the kind of things that they looked for? What kind of questions did they ask as part of that study? So we were asked what made it easy for us to to get into farming, what made it difficult, what would we like to see change, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that the general public or the consumer has about our industry, those kinds of things, you know, trouble that we have day to day, like what are, what the main issues are that, um, you know, what are the things we would fix? What are the things we would change? From your perspective, what are some of the things that you have encountered and some of the things you would like to see changed? 
one of the things that, that really, and, and because I'm in a supply-managed commodity, being dairy, and we have our quota system, um, one of the things that is, is quite frustrating for me is the misconceptions around supply management. I think it's a great thing. It saddens me that the rest of the world is trying to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. It's something that we need to, I think we need to, to try and hang on to and to fight to keep. And in speaking with a lot of farmers, specifically in the United States and Australia, and a few in Europe, um, conversations I've had personally, every single one of them says, you know, fight to keep it, fight to keep it, because they've all had it, they've had it taken away, and they desperately miss it. Right. The alternative is not great. Exactly. And I mean, there's just a lot of misconceptions by politicians and other people out there, economists that don't fully understand it. And I mean, they're they're sharing incorrect information. And, and so that for me is very frustrating. And I think one of the other things that's very frustrating is the misconception that farmers are not educated. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had a lot of people growing up and, and on into my, even my twenties. And when I was still in school and people would, you know, when you're making small talk with people you don't know, and they ask you, so what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to the University of Guelph. I'm doing my degree. And, and they're like, oh yeah, what are you doing your degree? In? And you say, well, I'm taking a four-year degree in agricultural science and I'm majoring in animal science. And you can, you can see their demeanor <laughs> change and, and you know, they're thinking, well, that's not a real degree. Yeah. That's not, you know, and, and I'm thinking, well, then you come and sit and you, you should have come and sat with me and wrote that biochemistry final exam and the, the calculus exams and all of those. Cause I can assure you that it is a real degree. <laughs> And right. and so that's a that's a big one a big issue I find is that I think farmers are dismissed as not being educated and and not being aware of what's going on in the world and and things like that. Those are some of the things I guess I would I see as as issues. And then I mean we we spoke about it earlier. Put on top of that being female and some of the misconceptions that go along with that. Those are some of the struggles we are facing as farmers today. Okay, so you're going to speak on this panel at the Arel Food Summit. Yep. So it's taking place at the University of Guelph, May 22nd to 24th. Sorry, I guess it's the University of Guelph and then also in Toronto. This summit is huge. I mean, Roberta Bondar is speaking, um, the chairman of the um, Bill and Melinda Gates um, Foundation Mm -hmm. for Agriculture is speaking. It's a huge deal, and it's looking at, it's celebrating innovation in, in agriculture and food and looking at how we're going to feed the planet going forward, really encompassing everything to do in agriculture. There's a session on mental health and farming, uh, mm-hmm. which is another hot-button issue. It's quite exciting. It's going to be quite a quite an event, and I'm thrilled and honored to be uh, included in it. And we'll put a link if people want more information on that. We'll put a link in the show notes where they can where they Perfect. can find out about it. Because, yeah, it sounds like a really interesting speaker program that they have lined up. Yeah, it is. I'm so excited to go. And then another thing that you are passionate about is advocating for autism awareness. Yes. And that hits close to home for you. Yes, it does. Yep. Our youngest son, Chase, um, he is seven years old, will be seven years old here shortly. He was diagnosed at two and a half um, with severe autism and global delay. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'll, very candidly, it turned our world upside down. Um, my mother has worked with autistic adults and children for over 20 years, and he, her and I, we still didn't see it until we had that first healthcare worker. I'll never forget the day, March 7th, the first time I heard the word autism associated with my son. So what is it? what is it that pointed that out? 
So the biggest thing was, and, and if he had been my, my firstborn child, we would not have had him diagnosed as early as he was, just simply because I had four children older than him. So I knew, you know, the milestones and when they should be generally, you know, hitting those. And, and he just wasn't hitting them. He wasn't under, you could tell. Everybody talks about the eye contact, the lack of eye contact. We did have eye contact with Chase. It wasn't it wasn't as often as it was with the other children, but we did have it. But it was just the knowing he wasn't understanding what we were saying to him and he wasn't talking. He didn't walk he didn't even he didn't crawl till he was eighteen months old. Just those are the biggest things, not wanting to play with his siblings. And then one of the really big things, two of the really big things was one, playing with toys. He wouldn't, he didn't know how to play. So he would take his little toy trucks and cars and blocks and instead of building with them or zooming around with them, he would just line them up and he would get very upset if someone would come in and mess that up. And so that was a big one. And then the other one was the repetitive motions and movements he was making, running back and forth across a room, constantly wanting to bounce. We have an outdoor trampoline and he wanted to live on that. Hindsight's twenty twenty. looking back at all of those things, the signs were there. But when you're dealing with your own child, that's not something that you automatically jump to, a conclusion that you would jump to. Right. And help me understand. So how was he wired different than the rest of us? So one of the first courses I took was a course called More Than Words. And the very first activity they had us parents do was they gave us a kaleidoscope glasses. And so these glasses, like if you, you was like looking through a kaleidoscope, they gave us some tinfoil type material. They put that on our heads. They gave us one of those kids microphones that you talk into and it just distorts your voice. And then they turned the lights, they were turning the lights on and off, on and off and blaring loud music in the background. And then they started to read us a story and it lasted maybe 15, 20 seconds. And then they, they turned the music off, turned the lights on, took all this. And they said, can anyone tell us what you just heard? And we we're like, no, we couldn't hear a thing. And they said, that is how your child views the world every day. And that is like, it brought me to my knees. Yeah, it hits you. So autism is a spectrum of disorders. And one of my favorite things is, is when, when you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. Every, right. yeah. every child is different, but at its core, it's a sensory thing. Um, mm-hmm. Like Chase gets, depending on each child, what each of their needs are or, or what have you, they either get more stimulation or less stimulation mm-hmm. from everyday activities that you and I do. And we, di- we didn't talk about this ahead of time, Brian. but our oldest was diagnosed with, in those days, they called it Asperger's. Oh, okay. And now, of course, they call that sort of on the mild end of the... Yeah, or high, or high functioning. High function, right. But when you talk about not reading the social cues and, and some of the, the sensitivity, I can relate. But I imagine for Chase, it's a question of how he functions day to day. Yep, exactly. So we've just been we've just finished up two years of uh, of IBI intensive behavioral intervention, or they call it applied behavioral analysis. 
we've made incredible gains with therapy, and that's one of the main reasons why I have become such an advocate for it because of the issues we had. And I'm sure maybe some of the people that are will be listening will will remember a couple of years ago when government tried to take away IVI from children, went against everything all of the experts were telling telling us, and so we had to fight pretty hard to get that back, and we did. And and we're so grateful because uh, if I hadn't have fought with all of those other parents, Chase was right at five years old when that came was coming down the pipe, and we would have missed it. And the gains we've gotten out of IVI are just, I mean, incredible. And so, what is what does a typical school day look like for him? So he's in regular school now. He has an EA. He has an educational assistant with mm-hmm. him full time, but he's integrated into his classroom in this class with his classmates. He has an IEP, an individualized education plan. But academically, he's in grade one now. Academically, in kindergarten, he was on par with his peers. He's obviously struggling. He has a lot of issues with his fine motor skills, so we're struggling mm-hmm. in in the writing. But sight words and reading, he's he's making a lot of gains there as well. And what is great about, or what was great about IBI or ABA is it taught Chase how to learn. And so and we're working with the staff. Chase is the first child at his school to be on the spectrum. And we are so blessed because all of the staff are willing to learn and, and willing to learn how to teach him. And autism is a fabulous exercise in compromise because while Chase is learning, we also have to learn how to work, you know, with him trying to conform an autistic child to how we think everyone else learns and how we think they should learn sets everyone up for failure. Yeah. So if we are able to kind of try and and put ourselves in their shoes a little bit, Chase is is very bright and very willing to learn and very teachable. and, And we're seeing that and the staff is seeing that. And we've had fabulous experience with Chase in school full time. Do your other kids, do they understand sort of what help he needs and how are they with with him? Oh, absolutely. We were told very early on before I really knew much about autism at all. We were told by all of the healthcare professionals that your biggest blessing is going to be your older children and and they are. They just there's something between children that adults will never understand and and whenever, you know, if we're having one of those moments where Chase is trying to communicate to us a need or a want and and his dad or I are not quite getting it, the kids always know. They always get it faster than we do. And and they are his best teachers, they're his best allies and growing up with a sibling with special needs it's hard, it's not easy, but I mean, it, it teaches a lot of compassion and empathy, and we're very blessed with the, with the five children we have. They are all incredible young, young adults already, and they do understand, and, and I see it in how they interact with everyone now, not just Chase. They're very understanding. There's no judgment ever passed with, uh, with our children, and, and I, I have to say I look up to them. They're, they're role models. And you said it, having a sibling with with special needs, one of the special things you get out of having a sibling like that is sort of what kind of person they're becoming. 
Exactly. Exactly. Everybody, I have my moments of, you know, when you want to, when you have those down days and you want to wallow in yeah. self-pity and the why me and what have you. And, and my kids go through that as well, because there are certain things that, you know, we, we can't do or we have to do differently to accommodate Chase. And they'll have their days where they're like, it's just not fair. And it's, you know, why us? And, but I yeah. mean, everybody has those days and, you know, depending on what's going on in their own lives. But I mean, overall, they they all say the same thing we do, that Chase is a blessing and he's an incredible addition to our family and, and he was meant to be part of our family. And what would be one thing that you wish people would know about autism? Oh, that is a great question. Um Oh, man, is that these children and adults, they can be, with with the proper help along the way, they can be an integral part of society. I, I, there's a lot of right. fear with the upcoming election, with, you know, a possible change in government. There's this talk that we may go back to a more institutionalized type of thinking and segregation type of thinking in the school system and not having these kids in the mainstream classes and going back to special needs classrooms and such. And, and I really do think that that will be a disservice, not only to children and with autism, but to those of us that are neurotypical, because we, there's there's a lot we can learn from people with autism. Exactly. They see the world differently than we do, but they definitely have something to offer. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like I always say, the parents of, of and families of special needs kids, we don't take anything for granted. I mean, we find joy in the smallest little things, and that is something that the world is missing right now. And I mean, for, so I think, I think, yeah, that's a really long-winded answer to your question, but <laughs> I think we can... We can learn so much from kids on the spectrum and adults on the spectrum as well. I agree. I couldn't agree more. Okay. This has been great getting to, to know you a little bit. And I'm going to put a picture when I, when I post this because you kind of look like, you kind of look like a lady who doesn't take any <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> with, with a purple streak in your hair to boot. Yeah. Well, blue, blue for autism. I do that for the month of April, every April for Autism Awareness Month. I put the blue in my hair. Right. Autism Awareness Month. Exactly. Okay. One quick fun thing we do at the end here. I'm going to give you a scenario. Okay. And don't overthink this. This is one you have to make a choice, A or B. If you could only milk one breed of cows for the rest of your life, A, Holsteins, B, Jerseys. Oh, A, Holsteins. (laughs) You want me me to say why? (laughs) Yes. Tell me why. Um, the sentimental part of me, because it's my family history, wanting to make my grandfather proud, breed a class winner at the Royal Madison and the whole scenes. I've, I've had two second places in the jerseys and we had, uh, all, we've had all American jerseys. I wanted to do that with the whole scenes and that's my first love. That's what I grew up on. That's strictly a sentimental answer. That's not, <laughs> there's no science or economics behind that at all. That's strictly sentimental. Well, you didn't hesitate 
really at all, and and you were quite definitive. I sort of expected you to waffle on that one. Uh, but that <laughs> I, was great. My tendency was to waffle, but you told me not to think it and just go for it. And so whenever I whenever I'm told, just you know, do it, just answer. I'm I I'm. You're right. I have a hard shell. I've I've hardened over the years for a few reasons. But at my core, the sentimental sap that I used to be is still tucked in there somewhere, and and that was a sentimental answer. So, <laughs> well, you've been one of the most cooperative guests we've had on the Ontario Agcast, and it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to have done it. It was a lot of fun, and thanks for having me. Hopefully, we get a chance to chat again soon. You bet. This has been the Ontario Agcast. The Ontario Agcast is produced by Christine Schoonerwood and is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. And if you're looking for a speaker on issues relating to agriculture, keep me in mind. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.